Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Are you ready to get down with some D&D? I know I am, and I am joined, as I am always joined, by the misty, mature, and monumental Mad Wizard Merwin. Those D8s are flying on those adjectives. I I, I like that. Mm-hmm, me too. They're so much fun. I really enjoy them. What's going on, Sean? Uh, we are recording at a different time than normal, and so we are waking up. Yes, we are waking up. It is a Saturday morning for once instead of a Monday night. I think I can do this, Chris. <laughs> I mean, I don't mind getting up a little bit early on a Saturday. Not a big deal to me. Sure. So uh, today we're going to talk about Xanathar's Guide, uh, the DM side part two, covering all the stuff that we didn't cover last time. But before that, let's do a few announcements. Sean, would you please tell me about the errata release for Princes of the Apocalypse and the Elemental Evil Players Guide? I would. I would. Uh, well, I think you just gave the gave away the main headline there. Uh, they released errata for the Princes of the Apocalypse and the Elemental Evil Players Guide. Now, I didn't read through it with a fine tooth comb only because I am actually in the middle of playing a Princes of the Apocalypse game. And a lot of the errata in there had to do with the adventure. So I did not uh, go through it. But there were a few interesting things that I pulled out of it. Um, one of the things was they talk about when some of these er- when some of this errata was added. And I noticed that some they were talking about changes that were appearing in the fifth printing of the adventure. And for me, that's telling in that they are still selling a lot of books and not just the core books, but these one off adventures, Um, because future uh, some of the errata said it will be made in future printing. So not only are they at least in the fifth printing of the book, but they are planning on more. So that's huge from what I understand about the publishing industry. That is really huge. It's a big deal. And so that just shows that. And we'll talk more about later about the bestseller list and and what's what's on that. Mm -hmm. But another uh, global change from the errata said, and this was covered part of the adventure. In several places, it said rather than using the investigation check to find a secret door or find a trap, uh, switch that over to use perception checks. So I'm wondering if that is now something that they are going to continue going forward where investigation checks will no longer be called for when looking for traps, which for me is a kind of a it's kind of a thing. It is kind of a thing. We have had that discussion. There's a whole episode about it, right? And we've had yep. multiple discussions aside from that. Yep. So this seems to be another uh salvo in that war to say Perception is going to be all powerful and investigations just going to kind of suck. Yeah, that's um, true. It's unfortunate. Uh, and, and I don't mean to be bitter about it. I, I was called out at my game last night for, from people who listen to the podcast that uh, they were calling me like Mr. Bitter Much and, and uh, saying that I'm always negative. So if I come across that way, I'm sorry. I love D&D and I love everything that's going on. I just call out the things that I notice and usually the things that you notice are things that are you know odd or interesting to you. So I'm just, I'm just doing that. And the last thing that I noticed, uh, one particular spell was eroded and it was in much need of it. And that was magic stone. So the magic stone spell originally said you, uh, it's a cantrip and -hmm. you can cast it on a, uh, three stones. And when you do, they become magical. And if you hurl them either throw thrown with your hand or via a sling, 
Um, they do, I think it was a D8 damage plus your uh, modifier. So if you're using intelligence to cast it, it would you know add your intelligence. But more importantly is if you hand it to someone else and they use it, they are using your modifier to attack. And the thing that needed eroded was there was no uh, end date to these stones. So as a cantrip, you could just sit there and make 200 million magic stones and hand them out to people. And you know, there's a way for a, a town to take down a dragon. You, know, you get a really high-level caster, 18th-level wizard, casting all these magic stones, hand them to you know the little kids in town, and when the dragon comes in, they start pelting the dragon with them. And instead of using their own poultry, you know, plus one to hit, they're using your intelligence modifier plus seven to hit and then doing 1d8 plus seven uh, rather than like a d2 or whatever. And so, 1d8 plus seven times 500 peasants. Yeah, you could take that. You could take that dragon that way. So what the errata says is you can cast the spell. You cast it on three magic stones. But if you cast the spell again, if there are any of those stones that have not yet been used, um, the magic goes away on those stones. That's good. That's a yeah, good errata. So, you know, it's it's just a just a, a little thing, but it makes a big difference sometimes. Um. Hey, you know what, Chris? There is a Kickstarter going on right now for the it, Creature Codex from Cobalt Press. Yes, yes, there is. It's doing rather well too. It's um, it's this really cool three hundred new monster uh monster book for fifth edition D anD. d So if you love monsters, it's a thing to to pick up. It's got uh, a thing called the Lotus Golem in it. I mean, it's got Wasteland Dragons, Shadow Goblins, and a ton more stuff. I mean. Yep. And one of the cool things is if you are a backer, you can submit your own monster for possible publication. Oh, that's neat. Uh, yep. And if you're one of the higher level backers, uh, you can commission Cobalt Press to design and illustrate your idea. So it's a cool way to get a lot of new monsters. And it's also a cool way to contribute a bit if you so choose. That's right. Uh, yep. It looks like it, it looks like uh, James Haken and Dan Dillon and you were recently on Tabletop Babble to talk about this. Yeah, uh, we recorded a few days ago. It may be out. It will probably be out by the time this show drops. Um, so if you want to hear James, uh, Hake, Dan Dillon, and I talk about what we did and about monster creation in general, you can check out uh, James Atricasso's Tabletop Babble podcast. And you know, it, in only three days, this podcast, Kickstarter is at a hundred thousand dollars, and the stretch the, the goal was thirty. Yeah, so it's tripled in in three days what they were needed to publish it. And then there are always with Cobalt Press uh, Kickstarters a ton of stretch goals. So if you're interested in monsters, check that out. I mean, the book's already three hundred pages, right? It's, or three hundred monsters. So that's a pretty big yeah. book as it is. I mean, it's just yeah. going to get bigger. There's going to be more monsters chalked into this thing, or some PDF oh. supplements, things like that. I'm sure there's going to be a ton of stuff. Yeah. And uh, we'll talk def- about it more you, in the coming weeks. Yeah, you get, definitely get your money's worth if you back a Cobalt Press book. All right. Do you mind if I talk about this next thing? Sure. So Patreon has decided to change the way that creators and patrons do the money thing. Now, uh, here's what's going on as far as the money stuff goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there used to be a thing where the, the, the patron money would get about 10% of it taken for uh, for Patreon and for fees and things like that. And that was always on the back end. What they flipped to is this weird thing where it's going to take a flat 5% fee from creators, and then it's going to put a 35% charge fee plus 2.9% of whatever the pay, whatever the 
the level is adding on to that for the people who are patroning. Now, that I think is terrible in my opinion. Like supposedly creators will get more money, but that's not really what's what I think is happening since everybody and their mother is like dropping their pledges. Yeah. Now, yeah, can I, t- I what Oh, go ahead. Now, can I tell you what we're going to do for uh, Mr. Director Mark Productions since this is one of the shows yeah. that gets patroned? Yes, please. I've done the math and I've I'm going to if they go through with this, adjust all the levels so that everyone will be paying exactly the same as they were before. Mhm. I've already done it. I've already got the math. I've put out a message to you patrons out there. You've seen it. So as soon as this goes effective on the 18th, I'm going to switch everything. Yeah. I I can understand that there may be good reasons to do this. Yeah, sure. But the, the, the problem is businesses do this too much, especially when they get large and start to think about maybe IPOs or bringing in new investment money, mm-hmm. then they need to do things to make themselves look more profitable than they currently do. And if, if, if even they had come out and said, listen, you know, we're trying to grow and we want to do, do that, but also do good things for our creators. So here's what we want. At, at least they would have been honest about it, but they were spinning it so hard. And anyone with any sense of, you know how businesses work knew exactly what they were doing and so i've seen a ton of feedback uh people showing exactly how much quote unquote extra money they would be getting as uh creators and mm-hmm. you know some were saying i'm actually not getting any more money some are saying yeah i am getting a little bit more money based on our current um you know setup but you know i might be getting an extra 7% of the money coming in whereas uh, Patreon is getting like 110% more money. Um, so it's, it's one of those deals where they do a good service and they've already set their expectations. And so doing something like this is just not going to go well. And what they're really doing is opening themselves up to competitors. Yeah. They're thinking about selling, right? Or go public or whatever. Yeah. 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 I mean, so, that's I mean, what it's about. Like, but what, what they're doing is they're giving Kickstarter the chance to really push out their drip kind of the, what what they're calling, I think, drip um, mm-hmm. patronage. That's exactly what's coming up. Yep. And they're also opening themselves up for other companies to get involved and take advantage of this bad blood that they're creating, which is always tough to do. So. We shall see. So I think someone summed it up great is th- that they that they're pretty, um, pretty ballsy to do something like this when really all all that their business is, is adding a button that would remind someone to uh, do a PayPal contribution to a creator every once in a while. It's true. And it's a little more complicated than that, but but not a lot. So it's because uh, Patreon actually has a lot of good features on it these days that we uh, we at Mr. Tomorrow Productions don't necessarily take advantage of like we could. Because mm-hmm. most of, I mean, I love the patrons, don't get me wrong, but there's 93 patrons and our audience is, you know, 30 times that size. So, right. I mean, probably larger than that, actually. Right. So, um, but I mean, I think that uh, I'm very interested to see what Drip does. Like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I can't wait to see what their, their features are. And I'm looking forward to any other third party, other, yep. other parties out there that come up with their, their, this kind of a platform. I signed up for the Drip newsletter yesterday just to uh, see what what they're up to and how that's going to work. But but you know the important thing is if you enjoy something, um, and and it's enhancing your life, your career, your entertainment, 
you know, try to find a way to back the creators. I back a ton of Patreons, um, even if it's a dollar here, a dollar there a month, uh, just to let the creators know that, hey, you know, I'm out here, I'm listening, and I appreciate what you're doing. So it'll now be like a dollar sixty four here, a dollar exactly. sixty four there a month. Yep. So we'll 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 see how it goes, but I'm I'm I haven't dropped any yet. Tell me about Winter Fantasy, Sean. The registration for Winter Fantasy is now open. It went live a couple weeks ago. Uh, a lot of the really really popular events sold out very quickly. But Dave Christ, the bald man himself, was always adding more tickets as more volunteers to DM come in. So even if you didn't get every event you wanted, uh, check it out. It is the first weekend in, sorry, it's the second weekend in February is Winter Fantasy. You can go to baldmangames.com, click on Winter Fantasy link to see everything about it. Um, I will be there the full time. I am running Return of the Lizard King over three, four-hour slots, and then I'm also doing two writing adventures for Bald Man Game Workshops. Mm, very so, exciting. Yep. And I will also be at Running Gag, which is a long-running, like this is their 22nd year, I think, convention on the campus of SUNY Geneseo in Western New York on January mm-hmm. 26th through 28th. I don't have my schedule set yet, but I'll probably be running some Adventures League games and maybe doing a seminar or two. So if you're in the area or if you're interested in a neat, smaller uh, convention that has a ton of games running, uh, check it out. I'll see if I can be there, too, at least for a day. Yeah, it'd be maybe great. on the 27th. OK, so Xanathar's Guide to Everything, it uh, ranks well. In the bestseller lists. In fact, on the Wall Street Journal, it's number one in nonfiction. Uh, Publishers Weekly, it's number one hardcover nonfiction. On USA Today, it was number 12 on the top list of the 150 bestselling books, all genres. And on Amazon, it's number 12 in nonfiction. That's pretty good. That's, yeah, that's not any small um, rankings there. That's that's the big big guns. Yeah. I mean, D&D might be a thing, apparently, again, huh? Yeah. And, you know, I heard someone say that more... At least half or more than half of the new players that are coming to the game are coming via watching live streams, mm-hmm. which is which is incredible. It's crazy. And it's awesome because number one in Publishers Weekly, hard, hardcover nonfiction. That's crazy. That's a lot of books. That's and a that's, ton of you books. Know, <laughs> yeah. And that's like, you know, three, four years after the first books came out to still be selling that on this kind of one-off, you know, splat book. I shouldn't say splat book, but, you know, it's a great book. But, wow, that's unheard of. They've completely changed how that works, right? Because it used to be like the – the. I mean, they used to do the publish way more books thing, right? Like right. Book a month, whatever. And, of course, as time went on, those books, they would sell less and less copies. Now yep. they're – it's like because of their, their marketing and the way that they're, mm-hmm. they're producing these books and the supply and demand thing, like these books are selling tons and tons of copies when they come out. Yeah, and it's not slowing down. And that, that's the thing, that death spiral, that RPG publishing death spiral, um, that's a, the, the big kind of golden ticket is how to find a way to stop that. And they or at least figured slow it out. It down. And so far they've sl- slowed it down like no company has in the past. So we'll see how it goes. I don't even know if they're slowing it down. They might even just be like flipping the script on it, right? That, yeah. I mean, that would be awesome if, if you actually keep increasing and selling more books as as uh, you publish them and then sending people back to the player's handbook and the DMG and everything. Yeah. it's Yeah. 
I'm I got my fingers I mean, crossed that it will continue. I mean, we're talking about fifth printings of Princes of the Apocalypse, man. Yeah. We're talking about fifth printings of an adventure book. Yeah. Like that's ridiculous. Yep. <laughs> I mean, I can't uh, think of anybody that's done that. Like, I mean, I, I'm sure it's existed and happened and whatnot, but seriously, man, that's a lot of, that's a lot of copies yeah. getting sold. Yep. If anybody hears that, there might be a wild cobalt running around in my house. That that happens from time to time. Yeah, that um, happens from time to time. I am being attacked by a uh, by a wild cat as as well. So I also wanted to give a shout out to Jared Rasher, who on our G Plus community um, posted a pretty interesting topic for discussion that led to some uh, good talk. And basically, what he was saying was, you know, the difference between running games on a grid and running at theater of the mind can sometimes change the pace of an encounter, obviously. So, uh, you know, he was talking about that and how maybe you could look at running games on a grid and when people are starting to count out squares and, and really focus on each five feet as something important to the game. Um, you could treat that almost like a movie does when it slows down, um, some combat and you see everything in slow motion for a while, just to show just how, uh, important being one inch closer or further away is when a punch is thrown, for example, mm-hmm. or when mm-hmm. a bullet flies by matrix style. So, uh, you know, so yeah, we yeah. talked about that. And he says, so, so I guess what I'm saying is if you're going to slow down the game to measure out exact distances or to clarify what's going on, try not to do that for scenes that don't feel momentous. On the flip side, if you do slow everything down to make sure that positioning is just right or to check uh, your advantage, disadvantage, try to describe what happened in awesome slow motion terms. If you take a long time to resolve something, at least try to frame everyone's mental image of that moment as an epic slow motion scene instead of just slowing the movie down to see if you could catch a glimpse of the boom mic that accidentally got caught in the shot. So I, you know, I thought that was a neat way to to say running different uh, running encounters and combats differently, you can do that to actually not just make the game portion of the uh, the game differently, but also you know make it narratively interesting. If you do run a grid and you know counting out squares kind of game, to to do just that, and it, it kicked off you know a, a little bit of the theater of the mind versus grid based combat and which is better and which isn't. But really, it's it's more about using those tools to tell the best uh, story that you can in your game. So if you want to go check out that uh, that discussion and add your two cents, there is a uh, link to it in the show notes. There is a link to it in the show notes. It just doesn't go exactly to that that thing. It just goes to the community, which is fine. Go to the community and find it. But I'll find the, I'll find the actual uh, link. Uh, I, I tricked Chris and sent him to the wrong discussion. <laughs> it's okay <laughs> i was like i i don't know where we're at um yeah i'm i'm with you on that yep. whole thing like if you can if you can manage it if you're if you're using the grid based combat and whatnot you just describe it in slow motion terms or just describe it as awesome just and describe every moment that you can like right after or, or after you're done taking your turn like re-describe what happened mm-hmm. yep. that's another that's another trick like so you always get that story, the story part going on with the with the game part. Like I think that's important. Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, you don't have to sure. play and, it that and, way, but it's good. Yeah, and use the tools at your disposal to to do it at the best time possible. Mm-hmm. All right, yep. let's get into Xanathar's guide, the rest of the DM side, or at least mm-hmm. a bunch more of it, because I would like to keep these shows to around forty minutes these days. Yeah, we had a lot All of right. news going on there. We we did so. Um. Strangely enough, for a lot of the stuff that we're about to talk about, 
we've already talked about it in some of the uh, playtest documents that have come out. Yeah, a lot of what we're seeing in Xanathar's was originally done as Unearthed Arcana articles, so we probably touched on them then. But it's good, now that the book's out, to just kind of give a quick refresher of of what we're seeing and and what our thoughts are on it. Absolutely. Let's start with encounter building. So what is the first thing? This is a whole section on encounter building. I actually think it's pretty pretty solid. I like that um, overall. I like that a lot of it is about sizing up the group not mm-hmm. necessarily just by the numbers but also by the eyeball test like what is your group good at what are they what can they deal with what can they what can they handle what can't they handle what kind of encounter do you want what is the story surrounding the encounter there's a lot of that stuff inside of yep. this as a general overview yep so yeah the, yeah they give a pretty good uh account and you can probably even skip most of what's in the dmg for encounter building and just start with this and then go back to the other but like yeah. you say you know assess the character uh, choose the encounter size is the second step they say. So is it going to be a solo creature, many creatures? But the one step they didn't put in that they should have is where is this encounter in terms of other encounters that they're going to take before they take a long rest? Because if they're only going to have one encounter and then take a long rest, you want it to be bigger, harder, more complex. Whereas if they're going to have 12 or 13 encounters before a long rest, then you need to know that before you create your encounter, because it's going to inform all of the other things that you're doing. Yeah. That's part of um, adventure building, right? Like, are you writing? And also what kind of adventure are you writing? Is it a linear story? Is it, um, does it got branching? Is it, is it a sandbox? Has it got a hex crawl to it? Like, do they have places that they can make choices to go and rest and whatnot? And if that happens, are there, uh, you know, random encounters could possibly come upon them. And of course that'll, we might even talk about that a little bit later since that's in this section also. Yeah. But, but the, I mean, the main point is D and D is a game that has been built on the, on the resource management um, system. And that hasn't changed over the years. It's still something that you need to be aware of holistically when you're creating your adventures. Um, and they, they kind of gloss over that or just skip it completely in this encounter building section. So keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. It's a good, good point. Good catch there. Yep. Uh, then of course, determine number and challenge rating. And there's like a formula for some of that stuff. And it's not really a specific formula. It's more of a, like, like a, a guide to be like, get close this way. Yep. And one of the interesting things is in the DMG, um, they have this concept of the multiplier for the uh, challenge rating and the XP that you use to build uh, if you have more than one creature in the battle. Now, the DMG uses XP as a way to for you to build your encounters and determine the challenge. Xanathar's Guide really gets rid of XP and just uses straight CR. Uh, and the, the math is now a little bit different, at least at the very low level. So in, in Xanathar's Guide, if you uh, they say that 10 CR 1 8th creatures would be a medium challenge for five first level creatures. Um, you know, the CR one eighth is tw- uh, 25 experience points. So if you multiply that by 10, that's 250. And that is considered a medium challenge for five first level uh, characters. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, so if you use the DMG method, that would be a deadly encounter, 10 CR eight monsters, CR one eighth monsters, because that would be 250 with just their, their experience. And then you'd multiply that by 2.5 coming up to like 650 experience points worth of challenge and 500 is deadly. So you're way over deadly with Xanathar's guide. It says those 10 CR one eighth creatures are exactly what you should be doing to get a medium challenge. 
So in, in just at that one point in the scale, um, that's completely different. Now I haven't done completely. the math. I haven't done the math up to see if that continues, you know, along as you become second level, third level, all the way up to 20th. Um, but that, that the multipliers have always been something that adventure creators, especially for public play have had trouble with because you really can't challenge players with a, with a combat with like eight, 10 creatures because that multiplier always meant you were way, way over. But when you played it out, it wasn't that deadly. So I think this is a way to start to fix that little mathematical problem that was in the DMG. Now you can have the fight against tons and tons of things yep. and it doesn't feel like it's unbalanced. Exactly. And then the next two steps are select monsters, which, you know, is pretty thing, you know, pretty simple. You find the CR that you're looking for. You look through the book, you find a monster that matches that CR that would fit into your encounter and boom, there you go. But the last and make step, sure that you, yeah, go ahead. And then make sure that you don't pick a bunch of combinations of abilities that will just murder everybody or do, you know, I mean, rates, you know, that weaken people as they fly through them. And, yeah. you know, yeah, that's we, we hate when that happens. Actually, I love it when that happens, but uh, <laughs> I shouldn't go on about that. Yeah. But the the big part that I wanted to draw attention to was the last step that they give for encounter building, which is add flavor. And for me, if you want to run a memorable game or write a memorable adventure, that is the most important step because you can do all the math. You can get the monsters you want, uh, bring them all in. That's all cool and everything. Uh, but that flavor that you're going to add is what makes the difference between, uh, you know, an encounter and a great encounter. And when I'm writing an adventure, that flavor is the hardest part to get. So that's why I write about eight drafts of each adventure of each encounter. Um, so I can say, all right, here's what it is. Here's what the players are trying to do and then what's around them. And so I'll write that draft and I'll be like, okay, what, what else can I add that's cool? Gives them something different to do, something different to catch their attention, write that draft and then say, okay, did I really do as much as I could? Is there anything else I can add? And then write that again. So that's that's the important thing to you know, go from a five out of 10 encounter to a 10 out of 10 encounter. It's usually where I start mm -hmm. when I'm designing encounters. I'm like, what is the flavor of this thing? How can I make it as cool as possible? Yep. What are the, what is, what are, what is the, the dressing right. of this? Yep. Because that's, then, that's where I, that's where I live. Right. And then I add sure. in the stats as, to make it fit. Yeah. But, uh, and then even then though, you would then want to say, okay, this is the flavor I wanted. This is the monster I ended up with because it's the best fit okay, how am I going to now change what I had thought was a cool encounter based on having to add two extra monsters or n having to use orcs instead of what I was going to use? Um, you know, how is that, how can I change the flavor now to make it the best encounter it can be based on those changes I had to make? Well, now we're talking, I mean, are we talking about writing for publication or writing for your home game? Because uh, if it's uh, writing for your home game, I'm okay. Because if you're writing for yeah, your home game, folks, just reskin your stuff. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. No, I'm I'm talking about, you know, writing something that is going to be memorable no matter what DM runs it. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um from from on the other side for those people out there that are just running in the in their in their houses. Yes, right? Um just reskin those things then. Get your flavor, make the flavor the mm -hmm. most important thing because that's really what your I mean, your home game doesn't have to be that um that strict. <laughs> right. 
That's and that's all I'm getting at. Yeah, but absolutely. yes, but what Sean said is yeah, yeah precise. No. Yep. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, but you know, think it through a couple of times is all I'm saying, because the flavor you may think of something better. Uh, and as you do the different parts of encounter building, some changes may creep in that you'll want to then think about. That's all. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. That's it. That's encounter building. Let's move on to traps because traps is a new thing. Mm-hmm. Or not a new thing. We've seen this before already. Um, it talks about the simple traps and also the complex trap. Yep. Once again, um, which we had that and then unearthed Arcana. Article. That's right. So uh, it's yeah. If if you want to, if you want to know what we think, go back to a previous episode where we discussed the traps unearthed arcana article and we really did a deep dive into it yeah and they didn't change very much about it either like it, it's pretty much what it was yep. um in fact all the advice in there is pretty much the same too so uh, yeah i'm with sean just go back and listen to that that episode I'll, I'll go back and try to find uh which episode it was and link it in the show notes mm-hmm. the uh but just uh, in, in brief the, yeah the, go ahead as I say, just in brief, what they do is they cover a level and threat. That's like the level of trap is determined by the tier of play. They uh, de- Then you want to determine the trigger, which is what sets the trap off. Then the effect, like what the trap is doing. And then what the countermeasures are, which are the things that the players can do in order to stop the trap. And that's that's really what traps are. In fact, that works for the simple ones and the um, complex ones. The complex ones have a few more things like there are um, persistent effects. There are... Uh, initiative effects and there are um, escalating effects. So the those are the things that are a little bit different about the um about the complex traps. And sometimes there's more uh there's more ways to overcome or get around that. That's more of a epic level, not epic level, epic mo- legendary monster style thing. Like that's what the the complex traps are. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't have much more to add to that. Cool. Let's talk about downtime. I love me some downtime rules. Like these were fun to read. Um. It's really just gamifying a lot of the things that DMs have been doing for years. Do you want to talk about some of them, Sean? You're you're cutting out, you Chris. You're cu- really cutting out on me. Oh, sorry. It's okay. Um, I'll try that again. I'll just start with the downtime part again. So let's talk about some downtime rules, Sean. Uh, it's really just gamifying a bunch of things that D- Dungeon Meshers have been doing for years. But you want to uh, get into some of them? I think these are pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, it's as Chris out? said. This is something that if you've run a campaign, but the only thing you've had are published adventures. You kind of have to fill in the gaps between. And so, you know, as a DM over the years, you might have created your own way to deal with crafting magic items or mundane items, or if the players want to go gambling or if they want to do research for new spells or research on monsters, or if they just want to kind of build a, a guild around themselves and make contacts or go carousing. And so what this, downtime section in in Xanathar's does is gamify that a little bit. So rather than just have it be complete role-playing, there are some charts that you can roll on to see how effectively you've made contacts. If you've made enemies while you've been making your contacts, uh, how much money you've made or lost when you're gambling, um, you know, what skills you need to use to do some of this downtime and, and uh, what roles you need to make. So, like, like Chris just said, it's it's kind of gamifying some of that between uh, between adventure uh, topics and um, events that that you want to undertake. So, give that a read through and see if it's something that fits your campaign. Because so you know, some groups love just doing the adventure and they don't really want to think about these other things, and you're fine to completely ignore them. But you can really string together some 
cool campaign ideas um, if you integrate these uh, downtime activities into your campaign. Now, there was a part of this section that I really enjoyed, and that was the rival. Mm -hmm. Because this is a downtime is a good place for your rivals to show up. So it's not just spending your days and whatnot to do things. But then there's some other play that goes along with that. Because the bad guys and the rivals and the people that are opposed to the, the PCs or even some of their friends who are um, not necessarily always of the same um, goal set as the PCs will be doing things and working on things too. So it has a nice little section in there for how to uh, think about what your what the rivals to the player characters are actually doing in the spare time and how they might show up. Yeah. So it's worth reading for that. Yeah, too. that is a cool section. All right. Let's talk about awarding magic items now. Um, this section is always so weird for me, the awarding magic item section, because the advice in here is perfectly fine. Um, I'm just never going to follow exactly. And like I would read it to get the tidbits that you want out of it, but I'm always going to follow the beat of my own drum when it comes to this stuff. Right. Anyway. Well, if, if you've heard this show for more than two episodes, you know that for me, magic items are the biggest... Um, kind of controversial and potentially game-breaking thing in the game. Uh, second only to players that are antisocial and not easy to get along with. Um, because magic items, no matter which edition you talk about, are always potentially problematic in balancing a fun game. And then if you talk about organized play you can uh, increase that complexity exponentially as you know, one character will have 12 magic items and another will have none. And so it's always interesting for me to see how each edition handles magic items. And so, you know, the, the very first thing that we heard about fifth edition was players and characters do not need magic items. They are going to be completely fine. If they play this whole game and this, a campaign within this game, with no magic items, they will be powerful enough to get through. But that is completely contrary to everything that's happened in first, second, third, fourth edition, and so on, uh, because magic items are cool. People love them. DMs love to give them. Players love to get them. They make them more powerful. They're fun. Um, they're, they're, they're a great part of the game. So there's always this contradiction in you know the advice they give, because they'll say, we don't need them. But then they will say players are expected to find 100 magic items over the course of their or parties are expected to find 100 magic items over the course of their adventuring career. So which is true? Is it none or is it 100? And, you know, so there, there's always this double standard of you don't need it, but we're going to focus a significant amount of time on magic items. So. It's just it's just kind of funny to to me that that tension, I guess, and that tension is mostly, I think, within me and within other people I know who have DM'd for a long time and seen the benefits of magic items as well as the damage that they can do to a campaign. I Am agree with everything you just said. Like everything you said is on point, man. Like that that section of yeah. the book does that. The the things that you just said about magic items, they're true. It's why I said the thing that I said earlier, like I'm always going to walk to the beat of my own drum when it comes to magic items. And it's always going to be um, informed by the kind of campaign that I am playing and the kind of adventures that I am running. Like if I want to run me some low magic, like there's not going to be a lot of magic items. And when a magic item really shows up, like it's going to be something really mm -hmm. important. But if I'm going to run Eberron, there's always going to be lots of common magic items all over the place because right. that's Eberron, right? 
So, I mean, it just magic in a world is magic in a world is a world building thing. And it's also a mechanical thing because magic items have powers and whatnot. They expand your, your, your power base. But in my opinion, when you add magic items to your game, they should mean something to the world that you're playing in uh, and the setting that you're playing in and how much magic is around, like, and also influence where the characters stand. So like, if it's a kind of a medium or low magic world and the characters are tricked out, like that, that should mean something like what, where did they get all that stuff from? Like, how did that happen? Like, are they now famous or people very interested in them because they have all this magic? Like that would be the things that I would be asking myself. Yeah. I think that is a great, uh, a great method of figuring out where you as a DM uh, want to fall on this continuum of low magic versus lots of magic. But one thing I do like in this mm-hmm. book is how they create these common magic items that are still neat, that are still yeah, awesome. Absolutely. They still have some sort of benefit, but they're not game breaking for the most part. Yeah, those are your that's like your bread and butter, man. You love that stuff. Oh, yeah. So, you know, you've got all these different uh you know, shields that change color depending on the mood that you're in or um, a key that not doesn't open every lock, but it has a very low percentage chance of opening any lock. Uh, no, that's great. Yep. I love that stuff. It's so fun. You know, armor that no matter what will never get dirty. You know, just those are, those are the, mm-hmm. yeah, I actually have, I actually yeah, have that cool. in a game. Yep. Uh, yeah, like I ha- one of my one of my characters has that they don't their armor never gets dirty the the the, the dirt and scum just like sloughs off of it. It's hilarious. Right. I mean, this this is awesome. A cloak of billowing. While wearing this cloak, you can use a bonus action to make it billow dramatically. You know, yeah, <laughs> things things it's like so that. <laughs> now you can throw for me. You can throw all the magic in the world at, like that, and you know, players who are into something like that will find a way to use that. Not just you know as as a little funny thing, but they'll use it as a role-playing trick and actually get some cool benefit out of it in a real and substantial way, you know, without it just being this cast fireball once a day, you know, it's, it's something that really adds to, to a game without overpowering the game. So, you know, give me these all day long. Yeah, they're great. They're, they're amazing. And that's a great way to add, like, like I mentioned before the flavor to your setting, right? Imagine if your world had everybody had to wear mood yeah. rings for um because because certain emotions mm-hmm. were were illegal to have. Right. I mean that would be an interesting setting. And if you're not wearing your mood ring, you're uh, you're mm-hmm. you could be arrested. Stuff like that. There, there's a totalitarian yeah. uh, fantasy world. Right? What I would love to do, Chris, is I would love to create a D and D game where the items, the magic items, quote unquote, are actually part of character progression rather than random. Uh, because what that does is that scratches a couple of itches for those players that love to build their characters from level one through level 20 and figure out what exact magic item uh, would best benefit the, you know, the multi-class skill feat combinations that they come up with, you know, they can do that, but it also prevents overstocking where a DM might get too, um, a little too excited and just start throwing magic items willy nilly at the players and then realize uh, it's, you know, it's too late because if you make it part of that progression in some way, and I don't know how, uh, yeah, but you would still give, you know, some options to the players, but you could have the DM see exactly what, at what levels and at what rate 
these magic items would work. It's an, I don't want it to be quite like the fourth edition version, but something a little more, mm-hmm. um, you know, game controllable as well as customizable for the DM and the and the players. That's just me. Well, there's always you could always build you could always build a class that does that too. I mean, now I'm with you. Like, there's there that's not a bad idea. Like, I, I'm I'm into that idea. Like, it's got a little bit of that wish list thing from fourth edition, like you mentioned. But I mean, you could still. I don't think it's really that big of a deal. Like, especially if you know you're going to have some amount of magic in your in your game, and characters are really or players are really jazzed about having a certain thing. Like, right. I would say, let me know what you want so that I can slide it into the game at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's 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 an excellent tip. Um, overall, I think Xanathar's is a really solid book. I very much have been enjoying reading it. I think it's going to make a lot of people's games a lot better. It's sort of like the the errata to the Dungeon Master's Guide without being the errata to the Dungeon Master's Guide. Definitely. On, on the DM side, it is exactly that, I think. I think it's, you know, we've learned a few things since we released 5th edition. So, you know, as a DM, here, here are some cool things. Um, and then you get the addition of like the downtime stuff with grow your campaign this way. And then on the player side, it's just a great, um, fun addition to the, um, the archetypes and spells and feats and so on. So, you know, it's a solid book all the way around. Can, can I say a thing r- real quick about, about this idea of, of having a book that is sort of like an errata book, but not like a second edition of, of a book? Mm-hmm. Like, I love this thing because of that idea that I just mentioned, like this is a new book and it's sort of as an errata of what has come before, but it's providing a bunch of new content and, and not necessarily errating things rather than expanding upon things and saying, you can use either methodology mm-hmm. if you really want to, but this methodology is probably the better methodology. So it doesn't invalidate your old yeah. stuff while building upon it. Right. I, I think the, the good part is what it's errating is on the DM side, mm-hmm. the encounter building, you know, that sort of thing. And then on the player side, it's adding new things more than errata. Yeah. You know, as, as Mike Merles has mentioned, they don't want to put out something that invalidates what's in the player's handbook. Um, and, and I completely believe that that's, you know, that's a good, good way to handle it. Me too. To, to bring out something new rather than invalidate something old uh, on the player side and the DM side, that's where there is a little more flexibility. The DM, you know, needs these tools to work to the best of the campaign's uh, ability. So, you know, go ahead and, and errata that and give the DM, you know, the updated tools that he or she needs to do what he or she does. So is that it then? Are we good to go? I think so. I think in total, what we're saying is whether you're a player or a DM, Xanathar's Guide to Everything has something for you. Absolutely. Well, I just wanted to say, everyone, thanks so much for listening. And before we do some Patreon shoutouts, I wanted to give you a Another show at Misdirected Mark that you might want to listen to. So there's Pandas Talking Games. Phil and send to answer your questions about role-playing games from the perspective of one-shots and campaigns with some panda silliness. And boy, is there a bunch of silliness, especially in the end where the outtakes are. Uh, it, to expand upon that a little bit, this is pretty much our uh, our intro to, to gaming GMing 101, player 101, 102 type show. If you want to get into... Uh, if you're if you're looking to to get, dip your foot into the whole gameosphere thing, and maybe look at some other games aside from D and suggest this is a great place to go and start because the show is short form; it's only about twenty to thirty minutes long. And Phil and Senda work well together. They uh, and they know their stuff. They really do. 
All right, let's do some Patreon shoutouts. Uh, Rob Whitaker, Jared Rasher, John Smith, Nikki Lewandowski, Merrick Blackman, Robert Aducci, Craig Just Craig, Eileen Barnes, Stephen Farrell, Scott Robinson, GM Gerrymander, Eric Bontz, The Way Gator, Sean Gilgore, Eric Jeppesen, and Wayne the Polydian Chan. And speaking of patrons, if you'd like to be a patron of Down with D&D, you can click on the link to our Patreon page on the website, and for $2 a month, you can get yourself a shout-out like the people I just mentioned. Or for $5 a month, you not only get a shout-out, but you also get our pre-production show notes, and we try to give patrons little extras whenever we can. Yes, whenever we can. If you can't help us monetarily, but you want to give us a boost, you can do so with an Apple Podcast review. They help even if you're not listening to us via Apple Podcasts, since many other podcatchers use that Apple Podcast as their way to rate and rank shows, and that would make us more visible if you would give us a review. Mm-hmm. Sean, where can we find you on the internet? Oh, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin and always on the Down With D&D G Plus community. How about you, Chris? Where have you been hiding on the interwebs? Well, I prefer that you contact me at Down With D&D on Twitter or at Misdirected Mark on Twitter. You can also catch me at The Light 101. That's my personal Twitter handle. But you can always go to the website where you can catch all a bunch of other great shows. And like the one I just mentioned, Pandas Talking Games. Mm-hmm. Down with D&D is a misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. So, Sean, buddy old pal, what are we going to do now? We're going to go kill some curious beholders. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. This whole party. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D?